Okay, friends, the story begins. We are on page 27. The prayer of Hodu, the opening prayer, the Shachris. We're on the second part. We're halfway down the page. We're about 16 lines from the bottom where it says, sing to the Lord. I think it's 16. Yeah, 16 lines from the bottom, about the middle, about the middle of the page. A little bit uh, lower down than that. Sing to the Lord, all the earth proclaim his deliverance from day to day. Let's quickly recap where we left off with last week, because this is important. So we've read the opening blessings of the morning. We've read and studied and explored the korbanot, the sacrifices coming close to God, the ketor, the incense, which is our innate uh, intrinsic connection with God. And now we're about to actually start and develop this connection. And again, the way the Zohar describes prayer is it's like a ladder. There's rungs. And each section of davening is a different rung, getting us to even greater heights, greater levels of self-awareness, or really soul awareness. And the beginning of the formal part of davening that we do together with a minion, or even if we're at a, without a minion, but the formal part of davening is with the hodu, where we offer praise. And we said hodu doesn't just mean to praise or to thank, but it also means to concede. The very first thing we do, just like when we wake up in the morning, the very first thing we do is concede to God. He is the true existence. ani. The very first thing we do when we uh, go on this quest to develop this relationship with God, is we say, how do we concede to God? And we pre proclaim his name. We also said that this concession, or really faith, that's really what it is, we're, we're conceding to our faith in him, is associated with joy. Searching for God is a joyous experience. If a person is searching for God, a person is claiming to be, quote-unquote, religious. I use that uh, with quotes because I don't like the word religious. person found religion, and they're not smiling. <laughs> they haven't yet found religion. But not only that, they're not looking properly. Because the quest itself, as we said last week, should be a joyous experience. And the way we awaken that joy is, like we said, remember the covenant that we made with God. Remember the journey that we're on. God made a covenant with Abraham. I'm going to give this land to your children. You're going to be the Jewish people. You're going to be the chosen nation. You're going to have a mission of illuminating the world. Remember that covenant. Remember your responsibilities. Remember who you are. Awakening that is a beautiful way to start the day, to start off prayer, starting on the right foot. And that's what awakens that joy. But now into the next uh, portion that we're about to read, leaves us with an incredible paradigm shift. Might be self, uh, might be obvious to some people, but to some people might not be. And this shift is that believing in God, praising God, is not just a Jewish thing. It's not just a responsibility that Jewish people have. It's a responsibility that everybody has. We're not suggesting that everybody needs to practice Judaism. But we are suggesting or or not even suggesting a little bit more than that, that everybody does need to actually praise God, Jew and non-Jew alike, and need to recognize God. Uh, let's read it inside. 
Sing to the Lord, all of the earth. Proclaim his deliverance from day to day. Recount his glory among the nations, his wonders among the peoples. For the Lord is great and he's highly praised. He's awesome above all gods. Okay. Everybody has a responsibility to sing to God, to praise God. Now, does this reflect reality at this point in time? Not, not really. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the studies are, what the data is. But how many people believe in God? How many people believe that God is relevant to their life? And that they're going to praise God, that they're going to sing to God? It's very important. Let, let me put it this way. A couple, a couple months ago, I had a meeting with a guy in our in my office. We meet every week. Wonderful person. And he was saying, what's, what is the Jewish view on, and by the way, I get this question all the time. What is the Jewish view on non-Jews believing in their gods? We as Jews believe in our God. And we believe believing in a different God is idolatrous. But what is our belief in regard to other uh, to non-Jews believing in multiple gods. Can't they, if they're feeling spiritual bad, they're doing, is that, a, is that a bad thing? The answer is, it's not the most PC answer, but it's the reality, it's wrong. And the reason why that's wrong is not because our religion is right and theirs is wrong. It's not a political thing. It's not a propaganda thing. The reason why it's wrong is because God is the creator. And we don't serve creation. Nobody has the right to serve creation. Just the creator. And if a person does recognize the creator, the reaction is, they're going to sing. Take a look at the next sentence. Where are we? Okay. Do you see it for all the gods? For all the gods of the nations are not. And notice that it says gods in lowercase. Um, in the Hebrew, it uses the same term, but it's not using a, um, it says the word, where are we? I'm lost here. Okay, in the Hebrew, it says, Kol Elohei Ha'amim, all the gods of the nations, Elilim, are not. The word Elidim. Does anybody recognize that word? We talked about that last time. Right, we spoke about it last week. So the root, the commentary said the root word of the word Elidim. In Hebrew, everything, every word has either a three or two letter root word. The root word of the word Elidim is Al, which means not. Not like, like we don't do this Al, right? Sim similar as low. It's the low and Al are the same letters and it's pretty much the same word. All the gods of the nation are not, but the Lord made the heavens. God is the creator of the heavens. In other words, especially in, in pagan times, people used to serve the stars, the constellations, the sun, the moon. These are things God created. Maimonides writes in his, where he discusses the laws of idolatry, where he defines idolatry in his Code of Jewish Law. He recaps the history or the evolution, really, of idolatry. There was an evolution. Because think about it this way. There's no way that Adam and Eve could have served idols, right? 
They they knew that God created them. They were formed by God. So at what point did that tradition get lost and did paganism start? So Maimonides says it was actually a slow evolution. Adam and Eve obviously had it clear. Perhaps their children had it quite clear. But at some point there was this philosophical belief, be careful with learning philosophy. <laughs> there was this, I guess philosophy basically means it's not true. It's what people think. <laughs> you gotta be careful with philosophy. <laughs> There was this philosophical belief that perhaps, yes, there is a God and there's a creator, but he gives power to creation. He lets the sun shine at will. He lets the moon reflect at will. Right? All of the constellations and everything functions at will. So yes, God is the ultimate creator and the one in power, but he's not relevant. Who's relevant is the sun. We need sunlight. The clouds are relevant. We need rain. So they started praying. They recognized God. They weren't full idolaters. They recognized God, but they would pray to the sun. They would pray to the moon. They would pray to the clouds. Eventually, this evolved into forgetting that there is even a God and just praying to uh, God's intermediaries. But the mistake started with thinking that there's independence from God. And the Talmud gives the analogy of a woodchopper. Somebody goes to the forest and chops wood. Who are you going to extend your appreciation to? It was a lot of work, right? A lot of exertion. You're not going to thank the axe. Right? You have a good axe. <laughs> okay, somebody made that axe. And somebody toiled all day chopping. <laughs> so you're going to appreciate the wood chopper, not the axe. So all of these gods are just something that people created, creations, right? The story, you know, the story of Abraham that's brought in the, the Midrash. He was, his father said, watch my idol shop. I'll be right back. Make sure nobody steals. You familiar with this story? And his father came back and all the idols are destroyed except for one. Abraham destroyed all of them and left one and put a hatchet in the arm of the idol, in the hand of the idol. His dad starts screaming at him, why did you break all my idols? This is thousands of dollars. He said, I didn't do it. The idol did it. See, he's holding the axe. He says, he's an idol. An idol can't do that. So he says, then why are you serving him? Why are you giving him so much credence? We don't serve creation. We serve the creator. Now, in our modern times, how do we translate this into our contemporary life? Idolatry does exist in our world, but in a very different form. People serve what they get from God rather than serving God. Right? We're serving what we get from God rather than God. We serve our occupation. We serve our financial security. We serve our social status on social media. That's a whole different story. But serving our occupation at the expense of God is taking God out of the picture. If God is the creator, then I have no reason to cheat on business because the finances come from him. The occupation is just the axe that I'm using to chop the wood, right? But I want a relationship, but not with the axe. I want a relationship with the wood chopper. I have no reason to work on Shabbos, even though it's very difficult. 
have some great stories about that afterwards if we have time. That I have no reason to, whatever it is, I have no reason to forego my values or God's values, really, for financial security because all of it comes from God and the occupation, the work, the business is literally, is literally just a tool. And if we treat it as not a tool, but as the source, it's borderline idolatry. It's not idolatry in the literal form, but it's the same philosophical concept as idolatry. There's a book called The Gate of Trust. Shame Sharon's not here because she loves this book. She's, she's probably listening to the recording, so she'll hear, she'll hear about it. The Gate of Trust is a beautiful work. I think we've quoted it before in this discussion. Um, it's it's the traditional Jewish antidote to anxiety. And in the Gate of Trust, authored by Rabbeinu Bachaya in the uh, 10th century, he talks about the benefits to trusting in God. The benefits to trusting in God is stability. Because when I trust in my occupation, I don't have stability. I have anxiety. So that's the there's the benefits. That's the human benefits to not engaging in idolatry. But either way, what we're, if we even if we're just being intellectually honest, God is the creator of everything. So we got to connect to the creator himself. That gives us the ultimate stability, the ultimate happiness, the ultimate joy. And our job is to not keep this message for ourselves. To share this with the world, because this is something that the whole world is going to sing. May well when Mashiach comes, even if they're not yet now. When I look back at the text over here. Before we get to the text, I'll tell you a story. Tonight, actually today, not tonight, but the 20th of Av is a special yurt site. It's the yurt site of the Lubavitcher of his father. Lubavitcher, his father, was a Kabbalist, famed Kabbalist, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Schneerson, not to be confused with his father-in-law, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, who was the previous Lubavitcher, but his father was a Kabbalist. He was the Rav, chief rabbi of Yekaterinoslav in Ukraine. He was part of a huge Jewish community. And he was exiled to Kasrama to never been seen again, to the point that he couldn't even make it to his son's wedding. Because he was in exile, because of the great crime of doing exactly what we're doing now on this Zoom call. <laughs> right? Don't do that in public back in the day. Before this event happened, he actually got a, um, a knock on his door. Nobody likes those types of knocks on the doors, right, from government officials. This government official says, They're, you, you giving you a tip off, you better, uh, you might want to leave within the next couple of days because they're coming after you. He says, why? He says, because they, you're a community leader and the government officials have seen you drunk in public. And that, uh, you know, they were looking for excuses to, that you know that you're not, you're obviously not a good role model. You're obviously not the best of rabbis, and that that's their reasoning. And he's trying to think me drunk in public. What is he talking about? <laughs> this was a overqualified rabbi, a saintly person, 
You can tell by his children. <laughs> Drunk in public? And he starts thinking and he realizes what he was talking about. There was a Fabrengen months prior, Hasidic gathering. And where Hasidim come together and we say L'chaim. And when we say L'chaim, we can kind of let go a little bit. And we can connect to our souls, let go of the inhibitions of the body, connect to the soul a little bit. And they started dancing. And they weren't being frivolous, but they they weren't, um, you know, it was beyond the presence of mind. It was a presence of soul. But perhaps to an observer, he's like, yeah, I could see how that doesn't look good. But it wasn't frivolity. It wasn't partying. And he explained this to the government official. The government official was so inspired by the idea that a Jew is drinking, but not to party, to connect to connect to a deeper sense of self, and he somehow managed to cancel the whole thing, which was only temporary, unfortunately. But one of the lessons you see from here is how being proud of his Judaism in public may seem to be like something that could have harmed him at first. Eventually, it actually saved him and ended up being a good thing. But here's something interesting. Every single one of the Chabad Rebbes throughout Chabad history, and probably most Hasidic Rebbes throughout Hasidic history, were in prison, served time. Because their profession was illegal. Judaism is illegal, especially um, especially in Russia, Ukraine, in anti-Semitic areas. And this, this is a history that goes back hundreds of years. To the point that it, it almost became a joke. There was a time where the, the Rebbe, the Lubavitch Rebbe, served time when he was young, him and Rabbi Yosef Bereslavechik, I think they served together. I'm not 100 percent sure. Rabbi Yosef Bereslavechik, who was the uh, head of school, head of Yeshiva University, he was very close to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. They were in university together at the Sabon. And when the Rebbe served time, at you were trying to save Jews in Germany or in France. I'm, I'm, my history is getting all jumbled here, but he served time, like a knight. And Rabbi Salvechik said to him, one day you might be the Lubavitcher Rebbe. <laughs> Look what happened to you. You served time. <laughs> but what's interesting is most Rebbes, when they have served time, this is not only true in the Chabad circles, they were in a prison with other Jews or by themselves. Right? When the Alter Rebbe was in prison, I think he was by himself. At some point, most of them were by themselves or with other Jews when Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Schneerson, the Rebbe's father, was in prison and was exiled, he was actually with other non-Jews. He was with an element of population that he wasn't used to being with. And this was taken as a message that we've come to a point in history where our job is no longer just to influence Jews, but to influence non-Jews as well. Now, that doesn't mean we need to start wrapping tefillin on non-Jewish people. That's not, our, that's not our point. Our point isn't to subjugate other people to follow our religion. That's not the point at all. And in fact, we should not be doing that. They do have their responsibilities with the seven Noahide laws, but it starts with recognizing that there is the creator. Recognizing that we praise the creator. We don't just praise creation.
Hold on, I'm just trying. I'm trying to find the English because I'm used to the Hebrew here. Just give me a second. Okay, let's look at the next line where it says "Majesty and Splendor." Do you see it? Before we move on, any questions, comments, thoughts? All good. Okay. Okay, we are one two. Eleven lines from the bottom. Majesty and splendor are before him. Strength and joy in his presence. In the Hebrew, Oz v'chedva bimkomo. Oz means strength, v'chedva is joy or gladness. Bimkomo in his place. So we need to sing to God. We need to experience the faith. And this is something that, again, what we're saying now is not just universal to the Jewish people, but is for everybody. Where do you find this? Where do you find God to rejoice in him? In his place. Okay, where's his place? Where was God found? This is an important question. Very important question. Where do we find God? So commentaries say the literal meaning means the Beit HaMikdash, the house for God, the holy temple. Perhaps it can mean synagogues, which is referred to as the miniature Beit HaMikdash. But you can take it a step further. Look at the original commandment in the Torah to construct a house for God, a Beit HaMikdash. I'll say in Hebrew and I'll translate in English. Make for me a sanctuary, and I'll dwell in them. The commentaries wonder, why does it say I'll dwell in them as opposed to I'll dwell in it? Because each one of us has to make ourselves a Mikdash, a sanctuary for God. So where do we find God in the sanctuary? But where is that sanctuary? There is the literal sanctuary, the synagogue, where we need to go to recharge. The Beit HaMikdash, where we need to go to recharge. But we also have to make ourselves a sanctuary, which is part of what the goal of prayer is. We find God not only in the synagogue, which is important, but within ourselves as well. And when we do, we find strength, we find joy. I'll tell you a great story. This is one of my favorite stories. I don't know if I've told it before. I feel like we've been doing this so long, I can't keep track on what I've said, what I haven't. So you're going to hear a lot of repeats. <laughs> there was a guy doing some soul searching. Trying to find himself, trying to find God, trying to find spirituality. And he went to 770 Eastern Parkway, went to one of the Rebbe's Fabrengans. And <clears throat> he says, so, so I, I want you just, just to give you the imagery here. You're in a room that can probably legally fit five, 600 people. There's several thousand people in there squished. There's the singing, there's the dancing, there's this, you, I want you to just close your eyes and imagine what the spirit feels like, what that feeling, how would you describe that feeling of spirituality in that room? During one of the, uh, I guess, the Nagunim, the, the Rebbe would speak, but in between, you know, there was a break for some singing and he went up to the Rebbe's table. And this is on video, by the way. He says, I came here to find God, to find spirituality, to find Judaism. If I were the Rebbe, my response would be, and there's a good reason why I'm not the Rebbe, and you'll soon see why. If I were the Rebbe, <laughs> my response would be, you came to the right place. Look at the, the vibe here. The spirit, the commodity. 
The Rebbe's response was, you came to the wrong place. You need to look within yourself. And the Rebbe said, you'll find much more than what you can get here. To me, that is a, when, I, when I saw this on video, I saw that the, 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 it's a crazy statement. However elevated, however you would describe this elevated spirit, the feeling of spirituality here, you can get much more within yourself. And they're true in both places. The literal meaning of Bim Komo in his presence, in his place where you'll find joy and strength, means the sanctuary, means the temple, means the synagogue. But it also means our own selves deep down inside, which is ultimately what the goal of prayer is. Now, there is, again, this is not something the whole world experiences at this point in time, but there it will be at some point. Take a look at the next sentence. We're going to jump down a little bit. Five lines from the bottom where it says the heavens will rejoice. Do you see it? The heavens will rejoice. The earth will exult. What does exalt mean? We'll be gladdened, right? Make sense? That's what the Hebrew is. Okay. My Hebrew, again, my Hebrew is better. Um, among the nations, they will proclaim, and the nations, not just the Jewish people, but everybody will proclaim, the Lord reigns. The sea and its fullness will roar the field, and therein will jubilate. Okay, let's take a look at the Hebrew. Also five lines from the bottom toward the end of the sentence. I like to work with the Hebrew and you'll soon see why. Yismichu hashamayim. Yismichu comes from the word samayach or simcha, right? Let the shamayim, let the heavens rejoice. V'tagel ha'aretz, let the earth be gladdened. V'yomru v'agoyim and all the nations will say, will proclaim, Hashem malach, the Lord is king. When Mashiach comes, there's going to be a time where everybody's going to see the, uh, this level of clarity that we have right now. Right now we have strong faith that the Lord is king. But we're actually going to experience it. Even the nations of the world, everybody are going to experience and say the Lord is king. There's a cute insight from the Rokeah, one of the commentaries on the Siddur. He says, take take the first letter of each word, Yismichu, but rejoice, Hashemayim, the heavens, Metagel Haaretz, the first letter of those four words. There's a Yud, there's a hey, there's a Vav, and there's a hey. Embedded within the joy that the heavens and earth experience, what powers that is the Yud and the hey and the Vav and the hey is God's name, is God. Where do we find joy? In God's presence, like we said earlier. Take a look at the next sentence in the English bottom uh, of the page. Then the trees of the forest will sing before the Lord when he will come to judge the earth. How does that work? How do trees sing to God? How, how does that work? <laughs> God is going to be so real that even the trees are going to recognize that he is the king. When Mashiach comes, even the trees are going to sing to God. It, it's going to be so real to God. In one of the entries of Hayom Yom, John, you'll have to remind me which date this is. It says that when Mashiach comes, the stones that we've been walking on are going to say, hey, 
what right did you have walk to walk on me? Unless we've been reciting Torah or doing something meaningful with them, why are we any better than a stone, right? The stones are going to scream. The trees are going to scream. And everything's going to recognize God and recognize what its ultimate purpose is. And I, I remember that Hayom Yom had said something about you blockhead, what are you doing walking here when... Right, exactly. <laughs> I don't it, remember it, exactly we, when it was, but it's not too recent. Because it too recognizes God. Why would we walk on it unless it's serving a, it, you know, unless it's serving a, um, its purpose, unless we're helping it serve its purpose. There's a Hasidic adage, and I'm paraphrasing, not quoting, but it's quoted a lot in Hasidic teachings and Hasidic philosophy. Again, this is a paraphrase, but were you to take a trip to heaven and see things from a more heavenly perspective, see things from your soul's perspective, you wouldn't believe in God because it would be obvious. Take God for granted. Of course, there's a God. There's nothing to, there's no doubts. There's no question. The fact that there's this space where God seems absent, although truly he's not absent from anything, but fact, the fact that there's a space where God seems absent really that's a nuance that's something i can't believe that i have faith that somebody might experience that but i can't believe that but were we to analyze our perspective the animal soul's perspective the body's perspective it's the exact opposite we take our own independent existence for granted and the fact that there's a creator and that he is the true um, power behind existence that's something that we believe in but in the Messianic era, where we all recognize God, there's going to be a shift, the paradigm shift. And we're going to have a very difficult time. We're not, the focus will not be believing on God. As Isaiah says, the world will be full of the knowledge of God. We're going to get to know God. What's the difference between faith and knowledge? Faith means, you know, imagine somebody's going through a rough time. And they confide you. And you say, I believe this is how you feel. You told me you're in pain. I believe you. It's not very, uh, there's a little bit of distance there. You don't really connect to them. But imagine you could assure them that you know how they feel. You empathize with them. Because you really get it. Right? When Mashiach comes, we're not just going to believe that there's a God, we're going to know it. And the whole world is going to know it. Even the trees are going to know it, as we're saying. Take a look at the top 28. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his kindness is everlasting and say, help us, God, of our salvation. Hold on, the English and Hebrew are not matching up. Take a look at the Hebrew. Second line in the Hebrew. 28. Do you see it? Baruch Hashem. Bless God. What else does the word Baruch mean? To create a channel. To channel down God. 
Elokei Yisrael, God of Israel, min ha'olam, from the world, va'ad ha'olam, and until the world. Praise God from the world until the world. Which commentaries explain, praise him, we're going to praise him in this world, we'll praise him in the next world. But what this also means is, in this world, we're going to get the perspective that they have in the next world. The level of clarity, this world we have faith, in the next world they have knowledge. In the Messianic era, we're going to have the clarity, the knowledge, the connection, the intimacy, the empathy that they're able to have. In the next world, we're going to have that in this world. And so are all the nations of the world. Everybody's going to experience this in the Messianic era. And this is something we start now by developing our own personal relationship as we journey through these prayers. Okay, that's my story and I'm sticking to it.